Hello and welcome. Actually, I'm not going to tell you what the podcast is. See if you can guess. Joining myself, Mooncat & Co. is Euro Palocho. Hello. How you doing? Same as usual. Uh, come on, you don't you don't hear Alan Titchmarsh coming out with that of an afternoon, do you? No, that's why he's a professional broadcaster and you're sitting around in crunchy underpants in a grimy bedsit. No, I see, I've, hell. I've never actually lived in a bedsit, but I imagine that... You're hoping one day to graduate to a bedsit. I imagine that it would be full of comedic possibilities. And straight away I'd be thinking, oh, Hancock and what have you. But I suspect the truth of the matter would be that it would be bloody horrible. I'd probably end up just, unless I could avoid it, just probably going for a piss in the sink. So anyway, that's uh, all for this week. Good and for Shirley Bassey. Hey? That's the punchline to an old story about David Bowie. <laughs> Asking where the toilet is in his dressing room. <laughs> we've performed a bit of a sleight of hand there, because what we've done, subtly, and I suspect unwittingly, is that we have set ourselves up for a nice little segue into today's topic. Because there you are, talking about housing conditions, for example, and we are, are we not men? Therefore, <laughs> this week, <laughs> we are talking... I'm sorry, you just... <laughs> I wasn't concentrating. Otherwise, yes, I would have been right in there going, we are Devo. But <laughs> no, you've lost me there. Slow on no. the uptake. You said, are we not men? Anytime somebody says, are we not men, you should go, we are Devo. Oh, I don't know about this kind of thing. Eurovision? You're talking about now? The Italian no, Devo, the American New Wave group from Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think you're just having me on, aren't you? No, seriously, that was a thing. You've, you've heard through being cool. You've heard Whip It. I don't know. Right. Listeners, Ocho is assaulting me with words right now. I recognise them because they all appear in the dictionary, but I don't know what they mean when he's ordered them in <laughs> this One of fashion. their members wrote the theme tune to Rugrats. I've heard of Rugrats. Well, hang on. What are they called? Devo. I thought you meant Il Devo. I thought you meant as in like the, the <laughs> group of men in suits. I don't doubt somebody's photoshopped something up there. Yes. Right, well, suffice to say, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but anyway, this week, we are looking at... Give, give us a Spanish title. El Hombre en Casa, I think, is the Spanish title, which is The Man in House. You realise that there is... It is something worth mentioning how many times the show has been translated. That does buy into a larger point. So yes, this isn't the first time we've done Man About the House. The first time we did it was only the ninth podcast, and I think it was only the sixth time I was actually present at a sitcom reviewing. Well, that would have been, yes, early days, and we were looking, if memory serves, and it really should because it's only two years ago, but if memory serves, I think we're talking about series one then, whereas this time we are looking at the whole big thing show. Well, the first time was a bit of a disaster. Was because it? Yes, having had a look at all sorts of different shows and how they worked, there wasn't really much to say about Man About the House. The comparison I can think of, you remember when we did Citizen Smith, and I said it was like taking an antique watch apart. There were just so many little things that allowed comic situations, allowed you to be sold on this quite unpleasant character. Things should have been against an audience liking him, but they're not. Because there's just lots of little things you can point to. If Citizen Smith is an antique watch, Man About the House is a pair of scissors. One half, another half, they're sharp, and there's a screw that holds them in the middle, snip, snip. It's an effective mechanism. It's exactly what is needed for the job in hand. But there's not a great deal to talk about to take apart, certainly not looking at one series. I prefer to think of it as, hmm, a pair of scales. Why? I don't know. I haven't got any scales in the kitchen, and I think this is why I don't really attempt recipes and things like that. That's Mooncat Biscuit. I'm not a drug dealer. <laughs> Hang on a minute. If you don't cook recipes in your kitchen, you're a drug dealer. Is that? Hey, Is that a thing? Yeah, I believe you. You're not a drug dealer. I was once talking about Keith Michelle in the Six Wives of Henry VIII. Mooncat just immediately says, oh, an eighth. I can tell you an eighth. And he's just actually quoting prices at me. You want an eighth of Ibrox gold? 
Oh, right, no. Speaking of which, because I do live near Ibrox in Glasgow, I meant to tell you this and I forgot all about this the other day. You know about Buckfast. The other day, en route to local post office, I spotted what looked like an empty Buckfast bottle on the pavement. Upon closer inspection, and by that I just mean glancing at it, I didn't actually get down on my knees and start, you know, looking at it through, you know, sort of a jeweler's eyepiece or anything like that. But it turned out that it was actually a knockoff version of Buckfast, if you can believe that. <laughs> same same bottle, same size, same colour. Forget this. <laughs> the label, the name of the drink was El Dorado. Okay. It was pure Spanish sun in a bottle in govern on the ground. <laughs> so, speaking of Spain... Very successful Spanish sitcom we're reviewing today. So we watched all six series this time because I was hoping that there was going to be a great deal of complexity that came to light when you looked at all six series, and there really isn't. I have a page full of notes this time. That's good. Let me put on record, as if anybody was waiting for me to make any kind of statement on the record or otherwise, but let me put on record that I am a big fan of Brian Cook and Johnny Mortimer's work. I really like the overall style of their shows. The dialogue is very sharp, very witty, without being sort of overbearing. To give you an example, I'm not a huge fan of American sitcoms, by and large. A couple of times over the last few weeks in the dentist's waiting room, that's not a euphemism, it really was, I found myself in the earshot of Fraser on Channel 4, because it's always on in the mornings. You said it again, Fraser. Fraser. That's, that's, that's his name, isn't it? I, Frasier. Oh, God. Frasier. I thought Fraser was the wrong name. I thought that was John Laurie. Right, okay. Bloody hell. Right. I found myself in earshot of that bloody spin-off sitcom with Kelsey Grammer from TV's Cheers, which is now how I'm going to refer to that show at all times in the future. We're doomed. We're doomed, as he says. Famous catchphrase. That's a show that's... Toss got- tatties and scrambled neeps. <laughs> I'm going to have to check every episode of Frasier now to find out if there's any episode in which his Scottish cousin, who, by the way, is played by Kelsey Grammer as well, but in a big ginger wig, if he turns up with some split-screen action and if he then sings at the end. But anyway, Frasier is exactly the kind of show which has got really sharp, witty dialogue in it and leaves me completely, utterly cold. In Cook and Mortimer's shows... There is always clever wordplay, really nice sort of double meanings quite often. And yet, I'm not getting the impression that this is just, oh, this is just a couple of smart arses, you know, with a a thesaurus and what have you. It's always nicely sort of weaved into the storyline, so it never really feels sort of crowbarred in. So thinking of other shows as well, say Alcock and Gander, for example, or George and Mildred, there's always nice little bits and pieces like that. I particularly like, you know, when you've got... Just little small misunderstandings, like somebody like Jerry, for example, Roy Kinnear will turn up, and just some of the bits and pieces, so some of the exchanges between himself and other characters. It's a show where, yes, it's mainstream, but I would never go as far as to say that Man About the House or George Mills or any of those things, I don't think they're cosy. I think that's the wrong word. I don't think they're cosy like Terry and June. Okay, so what did you make? What's your first impression of Man About the House Series 1? I've already said it. It's an effective mechanism. It's a joke delivery system. One thing did occur to me, because initially I think it's a very basic setup. It had to be made in its time. You couldn't have made the show 10 years earlier. The whole thing of a bloke sharing with a couple of birds. It's a 70s show in its concept, but it can be made any time since. And it has been. There's, it's been exported all over the world. I think I was watching, was it a Finnish version or a Swedish version? If you want to bring up some page with lots of information, see how many remakes there are of Man About the House. But one thing hit me. It's like, ah, there is one little kink in here, just one, that makes the the concept work. He's a cookery student. It gives an extra reason for him to be there. I hadn't noticed that the first time around, and just watching it the second time around, I thought, that's just one extra layer, so I'm going to upgrade it from being like a pair of scissors to being like a pair of pinking shears. <laughs> This tortured analogy will be continuing throughout this edition of the sitcom club. Well, it has to. I think I think it's a good way of describing it. It's not meant to be complex. I can understand why it became a huge hit in America. 
because it's more like the traditional American thing, which is gags. Somebody says something snappy and funny. Somebody else says something snappy and funny. Somebody says something that can be misunderstood. Plots generally towards farce. There's not much characterization in the writing anyway. It's a show that trusts its actors, but you can't really psychoanalyze any of the characters. George and Mildred are probably the ones who'd be the most appropriate to try and look at the dynamic of their relationship. But really, the, the main three, it's the nice young people who have been thrown together and things go wrong with hilarious consequences. I like that expression you use there, nice young people. That reminds me of when we were talking about revived live reports from 96 and Doctor at the Top, for example, and why those shows just didn't take off and why they weren't popular because it may well be that the audience had this image in their mind of those characters as effectively eternally young and if they had resurrected man about the house say in 1993 or something like that unfortunately probably would have gone the same way as those other shows because that's how they're supposed to be you don't really want to see them age you don't want to see them get responsibilities and so on i think as long as you didn't drag them down it would have been okay. Part of the problem with Doctor at the Top was the phrase like, oh, my flagging libido. Oh, I'm worried about this. Oh, I'm worried about this. Hey, let's talk about NHS reform in the early 90s. Let's talk about the fact there are more managers coming in. Let's talk about all the things that are going wrong. And of course, the liver birds was just like, oh, I'm middle-aged and I'm going to have a cry. Which isn't quite the huge break because Carla Lynn's stuff, the impression I have, I haven't seen much liver birds, and certainly not recently. But the impression I have, she was always more willing to acknowledge melancholy and bits of unhappy complexity in life. But I don't think it would have been insane to do like Man About the House 1990 as long as things were going wrong. I don't think you could ha necessarily have them all move in together. No, that would feel somewhat contrived. But you could have them say, stuck together for a week, six episodes covering six days. Stuck together for a week for some reason. As long as things are farcical and silly and everybody's generally pleasant to each other, but with snappy comebacks, that's fine. But yes, it would have been horrible, would be... I don't know how Robin's nest ends, but it, have Robin having been eaten up and spat out by free enterprise and bankrupted and Chrissy's divorced and Joe's got a massive tax bill. That would have been horrible. Whereas growing old disgracefully, if they'd all been acting up, acting a little bit too young, but we know that, we know that's what they're doing. So there's one bit that jarred, I think it's series one, I have the word in front of me. When the police come round, they think they've been burgled, and they have a poster saying, what is it, support your local piggery? There's a poster of a pig in a policeman's helmet. I said, that doesn't seem like them, they're not political. Can't remember where I mentioned it before. I was during Hope It Rains. That whole thing of youth culture movements being made safe. Bikers are either ridiculous or they turn out to be really nice people underneath. Well, in this, it's like, hey, these young people with their flares, they're all jolly nice, really. It gives it a certain cross-cultural appeal. Yeah, and there's also an element there of you're being allowed to see the permissive society at work and actually it's not all that permissive George is always wondering what they're getting up to upstairs you know thinking they're having you know wild orgies and what have you and of course they're not the fact that they aren't means it's for most people a much more realistic portrayal of everyday life and if all you hear about the permissive society is like reports on panorama and things like that and you think, oh, you know, swing in London, that's what's all going on, you know, Sodom and tomorrow and what have you. Then a show like this, it's like, yeah, they're just young people and they're just getting by and doing jobs and what have you and sharing a flat and it's all quite normal. Which I think is one of the reasons it's easy to repeat now. Now that everything they do has gone out of fashion, come back into fashion and is now in some sort of limbo. The only thing that's jarring is their... Uh their larger sexual politics. Well, you go queer. I think I said this before. The re One of the reasons it's jarring is because they're not too bound to their time. Apart from the way they dress, 
there could be people in their early 20s from most other... Um, not, not to say that people in their early 20s almost never use the word queer. It's just strange to see the nice young people on television express that kind of thinking, whereas nowadays television does not like to reflect that. The, the fact that they express and they're still supposed to be nice young people at the end. I've really talked myself into a corner there. You know what? You know no, what I, I, mean. know, I, know, I know exactly what you mean. And I think that there's a very, very subtle difference in that when the word is used by Chrissy or Joe or Robin, they're saying it with a smile on the face in the same way as some people in 2015 still do that. I know people who talk like that nowadays. There's no intent behind it. There's no ill feeling. It's just lighthearted banter. That's horrible, but I hate that word banter. But that's how it's meant to come across. When Larry says it, there's a little bit more intent behind it. When he says it to Robin, it's more of an insult. The, the key thing is, in the episode, which we'll talk about shortly, where they have the party, there are two very obviously gay men <laughs> amongst the group. And there is no homophobia there whatsoever. There's no hint of it. And there's no hint from any of the participants in the party. I don't know, aren't they kind of there to drop slight double entendres and be smirked at? Not in the most foul-minded way, but still. What I've sort of said is, these things kind of go through different phases, and initially there's like this barely human, horrifying stereotype of whatever minority. And then you get the accepted by the group, but still at a bit of a weird remove. Still got to be based around that central characteristic it's the elephant in the room and it has to be acknowledged. And then you get the completely normal character with this characteristic, which might be mentioned, might not. Well, I know you've been watching Larry Grayson, ITV <laughs> DVD set. I was going to say that I get the impression, similar period of time. And I think the, the moment we're in this era of the, the gay character being camp and unthreatening in the sort of Mr. Humphrey sense and being witty and likable and therefore it's breaking down barriers in that sense and then you go forward to the end of the 1970s and you've got two gay characters in Agony for example and they're not averse to using the odd double entendre themselves but by and large their sexuality does not define them in the sitcom, but you probably wouldn't have got that in 1972 or 73. You're still a few years removed from that. Is that fair enough? Is that fair enough? As a, yeah, it's as a transitional piece of work. It's of its time. It's right on its time. It's not slightly ahead. It's not what you might call fair for its time. It's just right in the middle of early to mid-70s humour about these things. Should we have a look at the characters individually? Because I'd be curious to know if you can think of more stuff to say about them than, than I can. Robin. Okay, so first up, I would say that Robin is fundamentally a likable guy, which he's got to be because he's front man in the show. I think there is... Actually, you mentioned Jacko there just a moment ago. I think there's a little bit of Jacko in Robin in as much as Cheeky Chappy. He's not quite the same as far as his demeanour. He's not like Vince, but he's sort of trying it on with Chrissy and what have you. But yeah, he knows where the boundaries are. He knows what's acceptable, what isn't. He's a little bit of a, a wimp on occasion, but he sort of admits to that himself. And I think fundamentally, he's he's a decent guy. And yeah, I mean, I've got to admit, I've got to admit, I am I'm rather struggling to, to come out of too many details. I can't quite think of the right word for this. I don't want to say dark. <laughs> Or heavy. There's something about Richard O'Sullivan. When we, if you compare it with Three's Company and John Ritter, there's something more about his suggestiveness when he tries it on. Not, I don't know what's the word. I'm not saying he's unpleasant. I'm not saying he's a threat. He just seems more lusty. <laughs> he's going to grow up to be a dirty old man in in a charming sense. Well, I think one difference between the way that Richard O'Sullivan plays it and John Ritter plays it is that there is more knockabout comedy with John Ritter. He's more sort of clumsy and slightly out of place. 
whereas Richard O'Sullivan, he is more given to sort of verbal comebacks, and he He's does more like Groucho Marxish. He does like to taunt the girls to an extent. I mean, there's this, like for example, that second episode where he finds himself in the girls' room. And he does that little trick where he says to Joe, when he's got a blindfold on, he says to Joe, actually, I think you'll find that that, that clock's uh, actually a few minutes slow. Just little things like that, where he's slightly cunning and what have you. Is cunning, is that fair? I don't know. I can't find a word to describe it. There's, it's just the slight difference between the performance. I think, I think it, it might have been created as a vehicle for Richard O'Sullivan. There just seems to be something slightly different in the performance than the character might have been on paper. So Chrissy. Chrissy's very likable. Chrissy is very sensible, very level headed. She's not too judgmental, but if she thinks that somebody's in the wrong she'll say so. Yeah, Chrissy Chrissy is a lovely, warm character. And And apparently it was originally supposed to be from the north. Now why did it change? I was asking you. No. <laughs> You're the expert here. You're Mr. Sitcom. No, I, I was not aware of that. I was not aware of that fact. So, I can, yeah, I can understand that. I can see her as a, a northern. I'm, tr- I'm trying to imagine her, the way that she is in the smoking room. I think it's supposed to be more noticeable in the pilot. In Paul Wilcox in the smoking room, same sort of, that's the sort of northern accent she's got she's there. She's from Manchester, yeah. isn't she? Hang on. Yes, she is. She is indeed. Is, is her accent different in the first episode? Well, not, not noticeably. I didn't think so. Okay. TV tropes lied to me. Fine. What's she studying? What's she doing in London? Well, she's working as secretary, is she not? Oh, okay. In fact, I think there's a suggestion that Chrissy and Joe are working in the same place initially. Ah, and Joe is the Peter Talk. Okay, now you're going to have to explain that. I know roughly speaking what you mean. Peter Talk yeah. was always the, it's the line in, in Head, the monkey's movie. I'm the dummy. I'm always the dummy. No, it's it's quite interesting. He was the idiot in the original series. They did that one-off reunion in the 90s. Maybe we should do that sometime. And they made a slight shift to his character in that he wasn't stupid, but he was thinking deeper. He's still thinking about the different things you can say about the topic that everybody else left behind five minutes earlier. Jo's interesting because she often says really stupid things, but she's kind of aware of what she doesn't know. Yes, and I would not say that Joe is naive. I think that she is prone to letting her mind wander, but she doesn't come across to me as in any way dumb or in any way... Like, for example, if Laddie is making a very obvious sort of allusion or advance towards her, then she knows enough to just help him out of the way. She's a nice contrast with Chrissy, because you don't really want to have two women who are exactly the same in the household. You want a nice balance. We're going back to your scissors analogy again. Actually, no, I'm going to use my scales. So they balance each other out quite nicely. And it's interesting that in the first series, of course, it really is just the three of them. Whereas in the second series on, you actually throw Larry into the mix rather more. Why do you think Larry was introduced? I suspect that Larry was introduced in order to have a male character say things that it would be improper for Robin to come out with. But nonetheless, things that sometimes need to be said in order to advance a particular storyline. You can't Why have necessarily... You can't have it be George because George, although George is, shall we say, a man of the world to an extent, he's also a generation removed. So he's not going to understand anything to do with pop culture, for example, and he's not going to understand modern idioms or anything like that. Let's say, for example... If Chrissy mentions about conversations that she's had, the office or the, you know, the bus stop or whatever it may be, and Robin is too polite to actually explain what the guy's intention was, you know that Larry will just come straight out of it and say so. And so I think that, yeah, Larry serves the purpose that he is a voice for, you know, the slightly more boorish, slightly more lewd male of, of the same age group. Whereas if it was Robin that was coming out with those things, then you'd have ill feeling towards him and you can't have ill feeling towards the principal protagonist in the show. And like I say, it would just seem, it would seem slightly unseemly if it was coming from George and also depending on the topic that was being discussed, it might seem even absurd that he would know about such things. 
How's your knowledge of George and Mildred post Man About the House? I like George and Mildred as a series. I think, again, it's a show where if that was a BBC show, I think it would have a hell of a lot more airplay these days. It does get quite a lot of airplay on ITV free, but I think if that was a BBC series, I think it would be considerable in the classics and get regular play on BBC Two and Gold and so on. Yeah, George Mills is a really enjoyable series and it doesn't feel like a stretch as well because in a way, Man About the House really is two different sitcoms that work very well together. I was interesting looking it up because I thought, yes, Man About the House, it was successful enough that it had a couple of little spin-offs. It's like, hang on a minute, whoa, George and Mulder is only one episode less than Man About the House and the original intention would was that it would have run for a further series. And Robin's Nest is longer than Man About the House. The thing about Robin's Nest, I don't know, I can't quite put my finger on this, but I'm not really a huge fan of Robin's Nest. I watched quite a lot of Robin's Nest when it was on Paramount Comedy a few years back. And for whatever reason, I just didn't take to it in the same way as I like Man About the House and George Mildred. And I suspect that what's going on there is that, we keep on coming back to this, the Spats effect with Man About the House, and as far as George Mildred is concerned, George Mildred's spin-off is not all that great a shift in terms of situation. Yeah, okay, they move house, and they move to a slightly posher area, and we've got a little bit of sort of class conflict and what have you, but it's still fundamentally George Mildred together, as they were in Man About the House. Whereas Robin's Nest, completely different atmosphere, different supporting cast. Wrinkly Sky... Yes, Wrinkly Sky, that is a problem. That needs to be fixed before any potential Blu-ray release. And I don't take to it in the same way at all. It's Robin Tripp, it's still Richard O'Sullivan, but that's really it as far as continuity is concerned. No, when I wanted your George and Mildred knowledge, I meant knowledge of their marriage. Were they ever happy? I get the impression that there was a point at which Mildred probably had hopes for George, and they've long since been dashed. I also get the impression that it's difficult because when you start piecing together bits and pieces from Man About the House, George and Mildred, Man About the House, the movie, and George and Mildred, the movie, then you've got a slightly complicated... Mildred's maiden name changes. Well, indeed, yes. You've got a slightly complicated arrangement going on there. She nearly married Norman Mitchell, for example, in the Man About the House film. But I get the impression that Mildred probably had high hopes for George at one point. And it's long since past the point where she still maintains those hopes. And I think she's actually sort of come to terms with it now, to be honest. She realises that George is it's not really capable as a man. Let's be careful. Let's <laughs> George. A little modern day phrase that quite tickles me, but I think it's absolutely applicable to George. He just fails at life. Yeah, actually, no, there is a sad thing running through this. It's with Mildred, really. She loves when she's invited to their parties. And it's partially the war, but it's also partially the massive generational shift of the 50s and 60s. Mildred would like to have been born in the 1940s and grown up in the 60s and 70s. She didn't have that youth culture when she was young. So yeah, youth is... It's great to be young. That was, wasn't Richard O'Sullivan in that movie, 1950s movie, John Mills? That's... One of the themes of Man About the House is it's fantastic being a young person. You've got life ahead of you and you're open-minded. And poor old Mildred. There's a little sense of, take me with you. Yes, and she's absolutely overjoyed, isn't she, when she gets an invite to one of the parties. And that continues into George and Mildred if she finds herself in any kind of social environment. There's an occasion when she goes to a Conservatives do with Jeffrey Formal next door. And she just loves being in this environment where it's all so sort of lush and everybody's nicely dressed and everyone's polite and nobody's going to suddenly blot out something like George would do that just sours the atmosphere completely. She's very gregarious and she likes being around different, vibrant surroundings. And she doesn't get that with George. It's interesting, the first couple of series, she's not quite settled in the dragon quality. When series three starts and she has different hair, but it is interesting, she switches between being a, an old-fashioned sitcom dragon and being actually the very nice, reasonable adult. Well, you asked the other week about 
Lollipop and Mr. Moe. Yes, yes, that was in the front of my mind. I don't think that Mildred likes having to be the dragon with George, and it's noticeable just how immensely polite Mildred is with everyone else except George. She's polite with the trio. She's even polite to an extent with Larry, even though it's very difficult to get on with him. She is polite to the four miles, but the only person that she really can't stand is Jerry, because... Because Jerry is the worst being. I really hate Jerry. I really wanted him to be castrated with a rusty spoon. Well, you obviously didn't watch every episode there. You must have missed that one. I suspect that Jerry is also in a sort of tug of war between Mildred and Jerry with George in the middle. If Mildred thinks she's making any progress at all with George in any situation, here comes Jerry and he's just going to drag him right back into the gutter. And I suspect that's why she dislikes Jerry so much. So like I said with Richard O'Sullivan, he's not quite cast against type, but he's not cast completely inside type. Youth of Joyce, 10 years earlier, was still playing Dolly Bird parts. Or maybe getting into the experienced older woman parts. It's an episode of Red Cap, if you ever want to watch that, where she's there's kind of a sense, I think, that she's seducing some of the younger soldiers. Whereas Peggy Mount, I've never seen her play a non dragonish part or a non-formidable part because I don't think she's quite a dragon in the Larkins but she's still a force of nature we need to watch more Three's Company to compare Ropers I can understand why the Ropers was not a hit and George and Mildred was a hit is Stanley Roper worse than George Roper he's George Roper as well not so necessarily as written on paper because that's like saying Norman Fell didn't bend the character to his own style, which no, no doubt he did. But imagine Stanley Roper losing his temper. And imagine George Roper, certainly as he was towards the end of the series, losing his temper. One of them is going to be more ridiculous than the other, and the other's going to be maybe a little bit truly intimidating. And I think there's a sense Helen Roper is a little bit more beaten down than Mildred Roper. And I'm wondering if you had different actors as George and Mildred, that would have continued through. And there would have been no real appetite for a George and Mildred sitcom. There's only one occasion when I think that George shows a little bit of steel in the same way as Stanley Roper would do. And that is the episode of Man About the House where they want to have a party. George says no, so they go over his head and appeal to Mildred, and Mildred says, oh yeah, don't worry about him. George then instigates a situation where nobody turns up. Even then, he's sneaky. It's devious. He does not put his foot down, and when he's found out, we just know that he's going to have his nuts crushed. Yeah, but there is that one... It's still the old George Roper. He's still a wimp. He can't have a direct confrontation where he'll win. But he does. He does it one brief point, as the only time you ever see him do it, is when... Robin's found out about the sign on the door that says to people, basically, you know, we're not well, you know, keep away and so on. He says to Robin, when I say there's not going to be a party, I mean it. And yes, he knows he's going to have hell to pay afterwards, but he still got what he wanted. He stood his ground. And just for that moment, he said to him, look, I don't appreciate being slighted in this fashion. And yeah, it's about the only time that it ever happens. But Again, it, it's nice in as much as when you get characters who end up as two-dimensional, then there's no surprises anymore. So you do want to see people act slightly out of character and surprise you and be slightly against type every now and then, because otherwise you can see everything coming on my off. One thing that's running through all the episodes is the will-they-won't-they business between Robin and Chrissy. Why doesn't Robin fancy Joe? Not saying he has to. I think he probably does fancy Joe, but I think he's... No, here's the thing. This this is towards the end of the series. We do start to find out something about Robin, which is that he grew up in his brother's shadow and that mum liked him better. Why is he attracted then to the more sarcastic... Of course, I don't know. I don't know if we can really try and pretend these are real events in that way because, of course, the reason is it's just written that way and then that characterization comes later. No, I think that 
Robin and Chrissy probably have a stronger attraction to each other than Robin and Joe would because they both like the verbal dexterity. They both like to sort of give as good as they get and so on. And Joe's reaction to both of them is slightly different. It's not quite the same. Whereas I think, yeah, I think they both like that. They've both got a twinkle in their eye and they enjoy that sort of back and forth business. Episodes like, for example, when they're babysitting. There's long scenes with them, just the two of them together and so on. In a way, it's almost like you're getting a brief glimpse as to what their long-term future would be like together in their own little home. And I suspect they probably would have been quite suited to each other. Whereas I get the impression, perhaps, with Joe that she's looking more for maybe somebody... I don't know, I get the impression maybe Joe's sort of looking for something a bit more magical. I think maybe she's still got some idea about perhaps meeting some famous film star or something like that. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, I see what you mean. Is it me or is there a big imbalance between non-central character males and non-central character females? Robin has a few nice girlfriends. Anytime Chrissy or Joe bring a boyfriend home, he's probably going to be a jerk, apart from Carl Howman that one time, who likes Stockhausen. Yes, I suspect what's going on there is that we don't tend to see a great deal of Joe's interaction with others. And... Although we occasionally see interaction with Chrissy and her boyfriends, like, for example, your man, film studies, oh, yes. here's the work of some bloody director's name. I Eisenstein. Can't remember. That's the guy. You just, you just said it. You just said it and didn't even pick up on it. Right. Doesn't know Eisenstein from a Beerstein. Anyway. Hey, I've got a good one. I've got a good one, right? A couple of British directors. This is going to be great. Fantastic. Because the thing is, is that Chrissy doesn't know her Asquith from her LV. <laughs> Hey. <laughs> oh, Morris Elvie jokes, they never get old. <laughs> right, okay, recasting idea. Robin Tripp, uh, Robin Asquith, what do you think? Anthony Asquith spelled his surname differently. Um, I knew that. No, he's more Larry-ish though, isn't he? I knew you were talking about Anthony Asquith. I, I, maybe it's just because I've got Robin Asquith fixed in my mind as he was in the Confession series. I can't quite see warming to him the same way that you warm to Richard O'Sullivan. Maybe he could have done it, but I've got him fixed. He just seems sort of Larry-ish. But to answer your question, yeah, I think that Robin and Chrissy are attracted to each other because they've got this sort of battle of wits going on constantly and given as good as they get and so on. And I think that that works very well for both of them. Tell you one thing I noticed about Chrissy and Joe. They go to bed in full makeup. <laughs> Well, I don't often say this, but that's just one instance where it's television. So that that that's <laughs> we can use that, that we can use that get at jail card too many times. Maybe now than in the seventies, though, because blue eyeshadow has kind of gone out of fashion. I suppose so. Yes. What did you think of the episode where they go to the firm's dance dinner? Is that where... the one where he's told everybody a different story? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Do you come out of that feeling sympathy for Robin or not? He should have been up front. It's it's one of those where it's like, look, with this one piece of information, he should have said, you know, I'm a catering student. I haven't actually told any of the others. I've told them all kinds of crazy stories. So I don't feel sympathy for Robin because he should have been a bit quicker on the uptake. The fourth episode in series three where there is a moose loose about this hoose and Robin, for his evil way, keeps quiet about it when he realises that the mouse is no longer around. It's kind of a jerkish move, but you could almost classify it as a prank. Well, it very nearly changes the entire dynamic of the series, though. If it wasn't for that mouse trap, who knows where things are going to go. Okay, am I insane? Somebody somewhere in this. There's a few times where they have to make it quite clear, speaking of going to dances, they have to downplay the sexual tension between Robin and Mildred. Handled differently, <laughs> there could have been something there. I, I will respond to that. I just want to quickly come in and say, in case you haven't seen the episode that I was just talking about a minute ago, what happens is that Robin catches his foot on a mouse trap. And it's not what you might have been thinking that I was referring to. I didn't mean that suddenly, you know, something terrible happened, which meant that every episode from then on there was a reference to his operation, like Arthur and on the buses or anything like that. Nothing like Trouble that. Mine. So, 
Well, exactly. I'll lower down, actually. But no. Right. Okay, so enough of that. Enough of that filth. How acceptable or otherwise would it have been? Let's say they waited till Series 5. So, 1975, thereabouts. How acceptable would it have been if, by that point in the storyline, Robin and Mildred were... Hmm. I don't think that was going to happen. <laughs> what I found interesting is that time he, he accompanies Mildred to the dance and suddenly he's acting like, oh, God, Mildred, oh, no. It's like, no, before there's always seemed to have been a little bit of chemistry. I'm not saying that the screen's been burning up. But I thought, has somebody deliberately said, let's look at what potentially could happen? Right, he can't have a good time. Because if it looks like he's enjoying Mildred's company, people are just going to assume he's going to book a hotel room. Is it not the case that in that particular episode, he's already had plans that evening? Was it not going to be the case that he was already on yeah, with the Yeah, but he has or... such a not good time. He doesn't even make the best of it. I found it slightly surprising. I didn't find it surprising <laughs> that they didn't do a tango <laughs> that <laughs> that caused everybody in a 50-mile radius to have the best sex of their life. I'm saying that he didn't just kind of like relax and say, oh, yeah, that was, that was a good dance, Mildred. Thank you. It seemed unusual how little he was enjoying himself, even despite the fact that he had plans and he was going to try and seduce Chrissy that night. Now I've just got this idea that George comes home early from the British Legion one night and, oh my God, he catches him. Oh boy. Yeah, and that's going to be a very different show from this point onwards. I think he'd just kind of cave in. I don't think he'd go Othello on them. So, plots that they missed... I'm just thinking they never really did anything about student politics, did they? You never had a, a slightly wolfyish fellow student of Robin's. Maybe then the problem with that, though, is you have to have Robin really sort of fix himself to a political point of view. I don't know that Robin really has any politics, to be honest. I don't think he's meant to. It's made to appeal to a great number of people. You don't want to start doing things that would... You know what the best series is, though? Series 4. Oh, really? Yeah. Why's that? They've got a Beach Boys poster in the room. <laughs> okay, why does Robin have knowledge of American newspaper comic strips? Because he's a well-travelled man. He and refers to he Joe at one in. point as Blondie Bumstead. It's like, how's Robin heard of Blondie Bumstead? <laughs> well, no, doesn't he read The Observer or something? Maybe they've made reference to it or whatever. I'm not sure that Blondie's ever been printed in the UK in any serious fashion. The Gambles was meant to be the British version of Blondie. Unfortunately, it's all going to turn pure sinister now. When I mentioned how one plot in Hope It Rains had surprised me, have I told you before you started watching these six episodes that at one point in this series, Robin is going to lose his driving licence for drink driving conviction? Well, you know, I thought that was rather odd for a protagonist in... A relatively light-hearted sitcom? That is a great example of... I don't know if the right word to use is the illusion of change. It's a, it's a thing in comics since the 80s and 90s that there's constant massive changes to set up. If you were writing character biographies, there'd be barely anything up until about 1985 and then, oh boy, the number of times characters have died, come back from the dead, retired, been replaced, replaced their replacement, been replaced again, then replaced their replacement, and that kind of stuff. And one of the arguments you get in favour of this is, well, you've got to have change. It's like, but you don't have to have the entire thing being burnt to the ground and rebuilt. And that's a good example. Having Robin's driving licences, yeah, we're not just going to cop out on the ending. It's going to be an ending, but of course we barely see Robin drive couple of times maybe it's not a cheat but it's like right this can safely be changed so that the ending is a proper ending but we haven't actually created a prison for ourselves in storytelling terms yeah that was a surprise in one way it's a surprise one way it isn't it's not surprising as much as as soon as you've introduced the plot then it's a foregone conclusion there's absolutely no way that he is going to get away with it and you could have sort of engineered some sort of convoluted situation which meant that he got off with you know, a warning or whatever and didn't lose his licence. But that well, was the just tax one, the tax fiddle one is, is an example of copping out on an ending. Yeah, but I think that it's very unlikely that 
you would have had that with this particular topic. You could add a cop-out. You could add a cop-out ending. You could say, for example, that like the lads, whatever happened to the like the lads, you could say that's a cop-out ending. Uh, you know, the one where they're in the cell together because you never actually find out precisely what happens as far as Bob's license is concerned. But categorically, you wouldn't have got Robin leaving the court without a state in his character and then getting behind the wheel and just driving off. It just wasn't going to happen. At the same time, yeah, like you say, that it's not really going to impact anything too much as far as the rest of the series is concerned. And as long as you don't have him behind the wheel in the very next episode, or ideally in any other episode in that series, then it can be safely forgotten about by the time next series comes around, for example. Right, we need to get in a little apology for Lollipop Loves Mr. Mole. You know what's going on about that tiny TV? Where the hell do you get that tiny TV from? There's no way. Because the whole plot is centred around the fact that they've got it on the slate and can't actually afford to pay for it. We got so carried away in our hatred of that stupid little TV. But of course, it was weird that they introduced it and then later on kind of said, oh, by the way, if you're wondering how they can afford it, they should have had some dialogue in earlier on. Why are we suddenly slipping this in now? Why do they have a remote control in Man About the House? We see it twice. It's not... Hang on, let's get this right. How many Onyx table lighters did Robin nick to get that thing? We must get this right, and this is going to annoy me now, because I actually saw this just the other day, and now I can't remember what it was called, but it is not a remote control. I know it's wired, but it's 1970s technology. It's still freaking space age. No, but it's got a specific name. It's got something, it's like extended control or something like that, but I think it actually begins with an R, but it's not remote. And I saw the other day, I thought, oh, that must be what that was. They still shouldn't have it. I've got, well, no, I've got a Betamax machine next door, and it's quite an old one, even for Betamax machines, and that's got a 3.5mm socket in the back, the same as you get with a headphone jack, and that is for exactly that device that you plug in, and then you've got the extended... And how many of those were sold to tiny three-bedroom flats? Well, okay, here's a suggestion for you. They rent the TV. It's still costs it'd still be cheaper for them to rent one without that maybe jerry got it for them oh because he knows where he can get them hooky maybe one of them built it that's what we never find out about joe she's really scientifically brilliant and actually joe built that for them never see her little workshop (laughs) joe gets a bit of a short shrift doesn't she She i always feel that they could have done more with her i just suddenly had a not a flashback, but just suddenly a startling idea pop into my head. As I was looking at episode titles for season six, and I spotted that there was one called One More for the Pot. And I thought, I don't remember that episode. They didn't, did they? But actually, they did. They did. It wasn't that episode, because that episode's about them potentially getting a fourth flatmate. But yes, when they're going through the garden and what have you, and they found the... And again, uh, they don't know what it looks like. They don't recognise it. Larry has to come in and point it. I suppose that's what he's saying is, you know, Larry can be the one with the knowledge. Except, of course, well, let's not spoil the ending. Speaking of things we don't find out about Joe, let's throw this out once again to our followers. We need your help. Okay, so in a previous sitcom club, we discovered, to our horror, that Joe has no surname in Man About the House. We have checked this. First of all, we checked it against the... Comedy Bible, which is, of course, the Radio Times Guide to Comedy, and no sign of a certain name. We also checked multiple editions of the TV Times between 1973 and 1976, no sign of Joe's surname. And so finally, we tweeted Sally Thompson herself and asked, do you know what Joe's surname is? And she replied, no, apparently she never had one. So what we would like to do is we would like to give Joe a surname. What we're going to ask you to do is tweet us your serious suggestions. Because, come on, we have to present these. Exactly, yes. Serious suggestions for a surname for Joe. And then what we'll do is all the replies we get, we'll then forward them to Sally Thompson on Twitter and we'll ask her to pick which one she likes best. And then that will be Joe's official surname from then on. So we can actually Put change. it on Wikipedia, linking to the sitcom club. Yes, exactly. Hey. All of us together, we will change 
sitcom history. The sitcom club will leave its own little footprint. It'll be all official and above board. Sally Thompson will have chosen it herself, and then there it will be. So, okay, let's do that. So tweet us at the sitcom club. You can tweet us as many suggestions as you like, and then we'll finally get to the bottom of this one way or another. The ending of Man About the House is kind of horrible. <clears throat> well, you know, the sheer Jerry... punch in the guts. You said yourself that Jerry was always likely to get castrated with a rusty potato peeler, and that's exactly what happens. And let's face it, he's brought it upon himself. Oh no, you're thinking of the other storyline. I beg your pardon. No. Yes, okay. So, are we going to spoil this or not? Are we going to discuss this? No, the bit that... Right, one, Robin's reaction. The sadness in his face. And two, this is the bit that I, I really didn't enjoy the last episode. The kick. That wasn't funny. That was distressing. Talk about MacArthur Park. <laughs> How much detail are we going to go into about this? Do That's we actually enough. This, okay, so this feels so like you, it's, it's think, a one-two punch against Robin. Well, I think you get the gist that Robin's brother Norman, played by Norman Ashley, arrives. He's the golden boy, and it it does actually say Robin. Does it not actually say at the end? The end. Yes, yes, it does. That is Robin's nest. I don't know that we'll be coming back to this a third time because we pretty much we've got to do George and Mildred. The full trajectory. Yes, and actually, we'll probably do Robin's nest at some point, won't we? Yeah, okay. And George and Mildred the movie. Oh, now you're talking about bikers turning out to be nice people. They aren't in George and Mildred, fronted by Hardman himself, Dudley. I've Sutton. heard it's worse than Get Carter. I watched George and Mildred on Christmas Day. Once. And you had to watch an episode of Enemy at the Door to get yourself back up. Well, actually, I followed it up with the Dickensian 3 2 one. <laughs> and it didn't, and it, didn't, it didn't help. Anyway, what are we talking about next week? We're going to talk about a show that only ran one series, has been barely mentioned in the wide world. There was even once a tweet about how people never talked about it. We will be talking about it. And our opinions may shock you. Download next week to find out more. Or stream, whatever you prefer. In the meantime, you can tweet us at the sitcom club. Don't forget to tweet us, Joe's surname, or indeed anything else you want to let us know about. You can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. And the aforementioned URL is where you will find every single last one of the podcasts. And there's about 80 of them now. And one of these days, I'm going to put all the podcasts into iTunes just so we can calculate how long it would take you to listen to all of them in one go, if you so wished. And actually, it probably won't be all that impressive. It'll probably be something like... Let me just think about this. Hang on. Probably going to be about like 86 hours or something like that, because they're usually just over an hour in length. So you're probably talking about the best part of four days, I would imagine. Maybe save it up for the bank holiday weekend in August or something like that. Only counting sitcom clubs, but this is including mailbags, but not including the summer spin-offs or Jaffa Cakes. Uh, the first 67 podcasts uh, would take 69 hours, 36 minutes and 10 seconds to listen to. Actually, you could do that on a bank holiday weekend, couldn't you? Yeah, if you start early enough on Saturday morning. Who's going to do this? For goodness sake. Anyway. You end up listening to Man About the House twice. Four <laughs> times if you count Thanksgiving and going to the movies. Osho, thank you very much indeed for your attendance today. Goodbye. And from myself, Hey Hope McCann Co., thank you very much indeed for listening to The Sitcom Club. <laughs>